Blog Talk Radio. And, and hello out there to all you Brooklyn and Dodger folk. This is the uh, converted Mets fan, Sam Maxwell, and you are here on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Uh, it's been a very, very long time. Obviously, a little rusty considering that I totally forgot about the Blog Talk Radio ladies introduction, but uh, here we are and we're going to get right into it. Uh, uh, I would like to welcome somebody I've known for almost close to a decade now, and uh, he, he's a fellow writer, fellow actor, and uh, he's a New Yorker, and that is Owen Goldenberg. Owen, introduce yourself on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, <clears throat> I'm excited to be here and talk about uh, the Dodgers and the Mets and New York with uh, with my old friend Sam. Well, of course. Uh, before we get into uh, uh, what you know, the, the crux of it, of it all, you know, the the uh, fact that your father grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, you know, I called you a New Yorker, and, and off air we were talking about the the universal, the timeless debate uh, regarding that. So, uh, would you really call yourself a New Yorker or a Long Islander? I mean, I would call myself a New Yorker. I would definitely, I would call myself a New Yorker. Um, I grew up on Long Island, definitely. Uh, but my parents both grew up in uh, – my father grew up in Brooklyn. My mother grew up in the Bronx. And my grandparents grew up in on the Lower East Side. And I always – you know, there, there, I knew a lot of kids whose parents grew up on that. It was a different thing. About parents, you know, from there. Uh, it just was a different um, a different vibe, a different way of thinking. I was, I was going to the city with my family at a very young age often. Uh, we, my aunt lives in the city, and um, by the time I was 14 years old, I was constantly going into the city every chance I got, even if I wasn't supposed to. Now, now so uh, let's get a little bit of context as to when that was. So you were 14 years old. What year was that? That was 1987. 1987 going into Manhattan uh, then, and, and obviously the, the, uh, the show that I'm looking to do is about the era 1937 to 1957, but the idea behind that you know, that 20-year period for me is that it's the most important 20 years in modern American history. So uh, with that context in mind, by 1987, what, what could you see regarding New York and, and, and what that era set up for New York? Well, um, I mean, both my parents grew up in that era, for one thing. So I got a, um, you know, uh, an education in a lot of the things that were from that era. My, my parents graduated from high school in 1950. My, my parents had me when they were 40 years old. So I, uh, I, I was not the typical kid my age. I was, you know, listening to jazz when I was 10 years old. You know, I was listening to, my mother was into Latin music. She was actually a dance instructor uh, because she grew up in the Bronx where uh, the, a big Puerto Rican population was growing and she embraced that. And so I, I, was definitely affected by that period um, uh, more than a lot of kids my age. And so when I was going to the city, I mean, I had that perspective. I also had the perspective of, of a kid who loved, you know, punk music and rock and roll and, and um, actually was already into hip hop by 1987. And, but you could see, you know, New York was the, um, had already been the catalyst for so many things. And that's why. Uh, hip-hop was growing in New York and why punk rock was still somewhat alive in New York and, and even dance music and, and stuff like that. Um, and uh, I also was very fascinated by the architecture of New York, which obviously 
you know, was affected by that period, and uh, landmarks, you know, restaurants, bars, uh, um, you know, the museums, the, the just, I, I was so, uh, you know, I just, what, what's the word? I, uh, I ate it up. Right, you ate it up, exactly. And and so, uh, what, what what's your dad's background? Uh, you said your mom was from the Bronx. Um, but your dad, uh, he's from Brooklyn. Where, whereabouts and what, what's, what's his, his family's history in Brooklyn? Um, my father uh, grew up in the Flatbush section of Brooklyn. He actually grew up in a house. His father owned a uh, factory in Manhattan, so they had some money. Um, but my father was never, uh, other than the fact that he was exposed to uh, culturally to a lot of things, that uh, a kid with a little bit of money would be opera. He went to his, his parent with his parents and um, you know, but he was loved baseball, all sports. My father played sports, watched sports uh, till the day he died, and um, he uh, would tell me about stickball and, and soup ball and you know a lot of the stuff that came out of, out of New York. Um, my uh, really, he he was the first generation in Brooklyn, maybe actually the only generation because his parents actually his parents actually came from Romania. Uh, my mother's parents were from the Lower East Side. And settled in Brooklyn? Uh, not right away. Okay. But then they had children and settled in Brooklyn. Brooklyn right. is considered like the suburbs, you know, where, where they lived at the time. Right. I mean, I saw a picture of, of where he lived at the time, and it looked like the suburbs. It looked like where I grew up in Flatbush. Right. And, and it did take a little bit for everything to be urbanized. I mean, you know, they talk about... Uh, when, when when Ebbets was looking at, at this place where Ebbets Field eventually settled, it was called Pigtown right. because of all the farm animals. I mean, you, you see a photo, and actually I'll bring it up for us right now, but you see a photo of Ebbets Field in 1913, and you see all these wooden ramshackle houses around it, which obviously eventually got replaced with apartment buildings and row houses. So... Uh, what, so you said your your dad was exposed to cult, uh, you know culturally. Uh, he he lived in a house. That's correct. And your mom lived in an apartment building. Right. Okay. Right. Um, so so the opera in Ebbets Field. It sounds like a a, a, a independent movie title, right? Uh, uh, so your dad was a rather quiet one, but it seems like Brooklyn and baseball uh, would would be where he get excited and, and talk to you about that stuff. Absolutely. I, I mean, when we were at home, he was very animated, but he was very focused. My father really, and my father actually wanted to be a broadcaster when he was younger. And uh, but then Korea happened, and he got married, had his uh, had a, a child with his first wife. That is like a drama unto itself. She was used him, thought he was going to inherit his father's business. He didn't want to work in his father's business, and she said, "Oh, let's go to Chicago." To uh, get it, um, my father, you can get a job with my father, and it was you can get a quickie divorce. Yeah, that's why uh, I did that. Hmm. So that's a whole drama into itself. But anyway, so then, um, so then he ended up, you know, didn't his the really his, I guess his dream. I think it was a dream because he was loved sports, and um, you know he had a good voice. We have similar voices, deep, you know, and uh, so uh, he ended up, you know, getting into. Um, Sales and, and then at my mom and uh, went from there. Yeah. And and you know when you said your dad was a uh, a salesman in Brooklyn, obviously the first thing that comes to mind always is is Arthur Miller's most famous play, Death of a Salesman, and that takes place in East New York. But he's from Flatbush, right? right. So um, 
you always saw that kind of in your dad in, in some fashion, maybe not as tragic in many right. ways, but you saw that. A little bit, sure. Uh, yeah, it, it touched me quite a bit. It, it hit me because there was – when it really hit me was uh, when my father got retired. He had worked for the company for 35 years. When he retired, they, they um, uh, screwed him on his pension and, and basically said, oh, didn't we tell you, you know, you have to stay a little bit longer? My father, his health was already starting to fail. And, you know, oh, so we're going to have to give you a percentage and all this stuff. And 35 years, you know, he was there for 35 years, and in the end, you know, he got a percentage of what he was doing. Right, right, exactly. And that affected me a lot. I think he was very disillusioned. I mean, my father was never a, uh, you know, uh, a man who was a uh, faith. Like, he, my father was always had to look at his eye like, you know, bullshit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, uh, exactly. But, uh, but yeah, I definitely saw it as the, my father, but my father wasn't, how he was different than Lily Loman. My father was not just like, like, I'm a big shot. Like, that was never. I see. Okay. Uh, and, and what's interesting, you were born in 1973, and uh, when did your, your uh, parents move to Long Island? Okay, so you were born in Queens. Uh, yes. So your, your earliest memories are within the city. Yep, Regal Park. Okay. Right, it was one, but we even, yeah, we were. Uh, so they, they were a little late to the, the, uh, the, the migration out to the suburbs in some fashion, but that that's a big representation of post-war society of, of flooding out into the suburbs and away from from what you know. It, it's kind of like a you know the, the snowball effect, the boulder type effect. You know, it's it's just all it, at first everybody you know urban decay. What came first, urban decay or everybody leaving urban decay? You know what I mean? Um, so. You know that that that's a fascinating time for for you to be born and and also for for your parents uh, to still be in the city and then eventually leave. Um, so when when it comes to baseball and and, and Brooklyn, um, you know obviously for you you came up when from a National League baseball perspective uh, the Mets were starting to to come back around after after a, a bit of a lull. Um, so. My question for you is, through Shea Stadium, through your father, through the Mets in general, did you get a sense of the Brooklyn camaraderie through all of those things? I think I did. I, I, uh, first of all, the, the Mets were underdogs. And I, I remember my father talking uh, about them bombs, you know, the Brooklyn bombs. And, 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 but it was, there was a certain uh, uh, pride in it, you know what I mean, like that they were, they were long shots. They were always long shots, and that was the, the Mets. As well, because especially, you know, living in the shadow of the Yankees, of course, you know, it's impossible not to. And your mom was from the Bronx, so I'm guessing she was a Yankee fan. She was, yeah. Yeah, she wasn't as, you know, much of a, you know, uh, a fan you know, of baseball as my father, but she she did, you know, occasionally they would get into, you know, arguments. And, you know, she'd want to watch a Yankee game, and my father was, it was, it was she was trying to be old school. Not, not on my television, you know. That right. And and uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Shea Sta- your Shea Stadium experiences and, and how that relates to what your dad went through in Ebbets Field. Um, I think, you know, I was lucky enough to be fairly young when the Mets were doing really well. You know, like I was only 13 when the Mets won the World Series in 86, you know. So uh, it was pretty exciting when I was young and um, – and when I really remember, you know, that's when I really started to go to games. Was probably at, after I was like nine years old, something like that, I'm up to you know, up to eighty-eight. 
I'd say I was doing the games, you know, at least once or twice a year. Um, and we were constantly watching on TV. But, but um, you know, for, of course, you know, it's, it's, it's such an exciting thing to go to a game. Um, I, I used to love the, just seeing on that field of green and, you know, and what was so cool, what's so great about baseball, and what some people just don't even understand, is that it's a relaxing game until it's not. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? But it's the kind of thing you can just relax and hang on and have a hot dog and talk a little bit and, you know, whatever. It's a bit of a digression here, and we won't go too far into it, but recently the uh, intentional uh, throwing four pitches on an intentional walk has gotten, it's been scrapped straight, and the manager is just going to signal them to first base. And it just seems to me like, like you're missing the point of it all. Because there's many, like, for one thing, what's crazy about these pitchers is that they can throw a ball 92 miles an hour like that, and yet they can't play catch. And that's all intentional walks are, and sometimes it gets thrown away, and, and there's a runner on third, and he's going to come home. And and you, that's where the excitement comes from. Like, the idea is that, you know, it's boring. Oh, you know, you're making it less boring with that. I, I think our friend Adam. Uh, posted something on on my wall saying they're making it just marginally less boring, and it's like you're missing the point. Anyway, uh, not to not to really go too deep into that. Um, you know, uh, what what are some of the the uh, uh, going back to Ebbets Field? What are some of the stories your your dad would would talk about? There? And maybe not anything specific necessarily, but but the aura and the feel of Ebbets Field. You know, because when when thinking about Shea Stadium, you still were never going to get that same Ebbets Field sense only because there's like 56,000 at Chase Stadium, whereas Ebbets Field, you, you capacity was basically 32, and you they they struggled to fit 38 in there during the during the World Series, you know. Um, well, my brother definitely did give me the impression of it of it being like a family almost, almost like a you know like 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 uh, and and the sense of. Um, uh, that people had a stake in it, you know, the fans had a stake in it. You know, I mean, that's, you know, there was that to some degree, but it, I think, you know, you didn't have, already by 86, you had cable television, you had, you know, you had other distractions, you know, that that, that people, uh, you know, were, were focused on. Whereas whereas back then, I mean, you know, this was this was everything, you know, and um, my father would, would talk to me about the excitement. I would, and, and, I mean, my, my father saw Jackie Robinson play. He saw Sandy Koufax play. You know, the, the um, you know, the sense of of legends, you know what I mean? Like, I got that sense from my father. Whereas, I mean, yeah, we, I mean, there were some amazing ballplayers, uh, you know, that, that the Mets had at that period in 86. Um, but there was something, uh, you know, uh, like there were demigods or something. You could tell from – you could you could get the sense from what your dad would talk about compared to what you were going through with the Mets. Yeah, there's a difference. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I mean, the '86 series obviously was was legendary, you know. Um, but you know, are there these? You know, that was the drama as great? I don't know. It didn't seem so. Um, and my father wasn't over nostalgic. He wouldn't. He was just. Uh, you know, and especially because of the drama that unfolded, you know, because of them leaving and, and all of that, you know, and that the Mets sort of, <laughs> the Mets were like a, uh, uh, you know, uh, something to hold on to, 
you know, at first. And then, of course, you know, it was like finally they were his, you know, his team. They were the, they were the National League team. And so, but I could imagine it, what it must have been like, you know. Because they, they went, what, five years without a team or two? How many years? They, yeah, about five years without, without a, from 57 to 62. And obviously they had an idea by, you know, by, the, by 1960, the, the, the wheels were turning for trying to get one back. Uh, which is a whole other story, but um, I think by '61 it was announced, and 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 you had the logo at least uh, by then. And and ironically, the um, the the land that Robert Moses wanted to give to Walter O'Malley, which he said to to Robert Moses, but that's Queens, it's not Brooklyn, right? But I'm gonna go Los Angeles. <laughs> but but like I can still I I totally get that. You, you you know if you're staying in the city, you couldn't go to Queens. Well, and was Queens even? Uh, no, Queens was a part of New York City. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. I mean, obviously, it's probably other than Staten Island, which is a whole other entity, uh, as we've discussed uh, off air. Um, Queens is probably the most suburban of the urban boroughs, if you will, uh, because especially then, yeah. right, especially especially then, and still now. Um, you know, that's what I love about Brooklyn so much is that you have every, like basically every element. I mean, I don't think there's any farmland still here. But other than other than the rural aspect of it that you used to have, you basically have all the different types of of communities in Brooklyn, and and, and that's what's beautiful. You got you know Bay Ridge houses, you got a suburban feel at certain spots, you know down Bedford Avenue and, and Prospect Park South, and then you have you have very uh, um, you know kind of half, half and half you know urban slash suburban residential type communities and like you know. Clinton Hill and 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 uh, um, and then you know going all the way back, Brooklyn Heights was the first uh, suburb ever. Um, so that's what I love about Brooklyn. Uh, so you know, obviously it, it it's a fun story, slightly off topic in terms of the 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 uh, topic of what the show is going to be about. But I love that story you told me about Shea Stadium and probably the, the, your favorite memory of of uh, going to a Mets game. Well, I mean, it just it just um, stuck out for me, sticks out for me because it was this very individual moment. I mean, I, I do remember, um, you know, some some pretty great plays. Um, you know, Mookie Wilson, Mookie Wilson was always exciting to watch because he really was fast, like he was remarkably fast. Mookie Wilson. I so I would argue that Mookie Wilson could have outrun that hit. That Bill Buckner. Right. 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 I, I, well, he, like, he had, the, the bottom line is that Bill Buckner shouldn't have been in the game because of his, his knee. You know, right. yeah, every single, every single, you know, he was only there because of sentimental reasons. The manager, McNamara, wanted Buckner on there for the, the World Series celebration, whereas he had always, and I forget the name of the guy who would replace him for defensive purposes, he would be replaced for defensive purposes. And he shouldn't have been out there, and that's why Mookie Wilson to this day says that he would have beat him out anyway. And that's probably why Buckner fumbled it a little bit. And with the, the funny the thing that Buckner talks about is that his glove wouldn't open; it didn't go under; it went to the side. But his glove, it was like a mechanical issue. It was a mechanical issue where it, the ball ended up, I think, going to the left and far enough to gather the ball up. And he says it's probably because he knew how fast Mookie was. He was rushing it a little bit, right. um, but yeah. So, so. But so this, this this moment, this 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 moment when I was a kid, I, for whatever reason, I, I think it was because they gave out uh, uh, programs, but they weren't like great programs. So people started making paper airplanes all over the place, right? 
right? So, and it was a, it was a, it was a gusty day, and I made this paper a long, perfect paper airplane, and I tossed it, right? And it, it floated in the air, like above me, just like out. And I, I pointed to my dad, I was like, Dad, you see that? I did that. And he was like, oh, wow, you know, back to the game, whatever. And it just floated there. For How long. old were you at this time? Oh, you, were, you were about a 12? Right, something okay. like that. Because yeah. we went to games a few years before and after the World Series. But um, so it floated there, and then it just all of a sudden swooped down, all the way down, just followed the, the, uh, the stand and hit Howard Johnson in the foot. And he was playing third base at the time. Right, but luckily a play had just happened, so it wasn't like a play was going to happen like any second. But it, he actually noticed it. He actually went like, <laughs> and, like kicked it to the side. And forever, and that's, you know, that, that, it was so exciting to me. I was like, I was stunned. I was like, what the, I couldn't believe it. And uh, there was really no one to tell, and no one was really right. watching it. It was just a crazy moment. That, that's fun. I think it also speaks to, well, what's interesting for me is it obviously brings up the fact that LaGuardia is right there. Everybody's making paper airplanes, but you actually have real airplanes going by. You know, that, that, that's the reason why the Jets are called the Jets is because they moved to Shea Stadium after they were the Titans first. Um, you know, and I'm sure a lot of what you're talking about in terms of the wind had something to do with the bowl shape of, of Shea Stadium. And, you know? and that it was near the water. Yeah. And now that's the thing. It's like, you know, there were so many cookie-cutter uh, stadiums in the 60s, except Shea Stadium still stands out to me compared to Three Rivers and Pittsburgh and, and uh, uh, veterans in Philadelphia, um, is that it was open at the, uh, you know, in the front. And it had that, that the color, and I even have over here in my apartment, uh, in Flatbush, by the way, um, I have the, the Shea Stadium orange and blue tiles that used to be on there that was, that was obviously a very 60s design. Um, you know, it, it stood out, even though it was slightly multi-use and cookie-cutter, it still stood out to me for having carrots, mm-hmm. you know. And it, I think, it, in a way, it gave it this cer- certain for hitting and epic quality because there was this sense of, like, you know, maybe they could hit it. Who knows how far right. they could because it was open. Right, which is probably, you'd, you'd say, the last hurrah for, for that was Mike Piazza. Now that, now that it's been closed, now, now that it's been shut down for almost, for nine years now. Yeah. But Strawberry is. Right, oh, of course. Like, just unbelievable, you know, the golf swing. And, you know. and this is actually a good segue uh, um, for, for you, you know, to, to bring up your personal experience with baseball in that recently, right, right after that, I mean, not recently, excuse me, um, but uh, not too far after 86, uh, you got a little disillusioned with the game. Yeah, I, I, mean, I was, you know, 15 years old in 88, and I was getting really into music, and I was getting into film, I was, you know, I, I ended up, you know, uh, right in high school, you know, getting into actually performing out in the theater, I was acting and uh, bands and stuff like that, and I, and I already was, you know, just getting into other things, but then the whole, um, the whole drug, uh, you know, scandal right. came up, and, and, and what was so disappointing to me was, was they were, you know, Gooden and Strawberry, the two of the most, uh, you know, they had the most potential of, of just about anybody in baseball. And it was so disillusioned. And it, it, it hurt my feelings about the game. And right at the time when I was getting into other things, and I, I kind of, you know, drifted away from from uh, baseball. And then you had, obviously, uh, the context of Dwight Gooden and, and Daryl Strawberry. But then, specifically with Strawberry, thinking about the fact that he eventually went to Los Angeles, uh, for in free agency, the free agent stuff, and the way that that the the kind of egos that 
at the time baseball players seemed to have also helped segue you away? Well, I remember hearing right around that time, I remember hearing some, some a baseball player just openly say, like, well, you know, uh, because this was before, what, what's the term for when you, no matter what happens, you still get your money? A guaranteed money. That wasn't always the case, right? I, I, I mean, they fought for it. I, I don't know the full-on specifics of what led to the the strike. I know that, that uh, the owners wanted a salary cap, and, and the player union would not bend on that for sure. Um, but I, I, I know that it's an issue in football right now, but I, I couldn't tell you what, what the specifics were in the, the 80s and 90s before the strike about guaranteed money. Yeah, because I don't think they, that it existed yet. And I remember hearing a player say, uh, well, you can already see it. I mean, because I, I, the last player in my mind, you know, certainly in the 80s and 90s, that would sacrifice himself for the game was Lenny Dykstra. Like, I don't – there were probably some other ones, but I was a Mets fan. So, But, but you know, and that my father would talk about that. You know what I mean? Like, like these guys that would kill themselves to, to get a catch. Pete Reeser is, is pistol. Pete Reeser for the Dodgers is, is uh, you know, Leo DeRocher until the day he died said that he was better than William Mays. And, you know, he, you look at the numbers and he basically, uh, middle of 1941 season, you know, after uh, some real hard injuries into the wall, it just didn't work out. And then he probably shouldn't have been playing baseball in the, in the war. And he basically got, got pulled into the war just so they could field a good team. They're like, oh, you're Pete Reeser. You know what? <laughs> it's like, wait a second. Um, but that's, that's a, another story for another day. Um, so my, my, my point was, that, you know, is that I, um, I remember hearing a player say, well, I'm not going to kill my – I don't want to lose my money. I don't want to – you know, I'm, I'm making $2 million a year. I don't want to, you know, whatever. Lose that, yeah. Lose that. And, and in an interview, he actually said that. He's, he's something about – but I think the, the, the interviewer was saying, like, you know, you could have – a lot of people think you should have go for that or whatever. And he actually just openly admitted. And I was like – I just it was like, this is getting really lame. It's more about money and, and – uh, and, and just partying, you know. And I, I will uh, claim that it has gone uh, back to the love of the game, even though they make a lot of money. And maybe it is now the official guaranteed money, knowing that it doesn't matter. You're going to get taken care of, right. it, even if you, you lay out and, and um, you know, injure your wrists or whatever. Uh, you know, Juan Ligueras comes to mind that, that he's constantly getting injured, but he's also constantly sacrificing his body. That's the reason he's getting injured so much. I mean, even, you know, he, he pulled a ligament in the thumb, making one of the most remarkable catches you'll ever see last year um, for the Mets. And, and so, weirdly enough, I think that the egos have subsided a little bit. Maybe it's also, weirdly enough, social media, you're kind of more weirdly connected to, even though it's not the exact same as when they used to live in the neighborhoods like they did in Brooklyn, you're able to interact with them on social media. They'll like something. They'll retweet. They'll they'll respond to you. Or tell you, tell you you're a bum. Right, exactly. Or tell you you're a bum. I mean, you see it with, like, I, I think uh, as a digression, Daryl uh, Revis right now is, is dealing with that, where, where his ego's getting, you know, a little too heightened. Um, but but weirdly enough, I think it's gone back to the love of the game and just wanting to the, – the Joe DiMaggio – Kind of, kind of uh, mentality where there's always somebody out there that hasn't seen me play. Um, so, uh, you know, we're we're getting close to the end of the show. Uh, we got about two minutes left, so uh, I'll let you take the reins as to what is, you know, I'll just ask you a broad question: What is the legacy of Brooklyn in that era? Well, um, I think that 
you know, the Dodgers were were a part of uh, a Brooklyn that kept Brooklyn as something special in people's minds, even after they're gone and and everything changed. Isn't it interesting that everybody wants to come to Brooklyn, right? Everyone wants to live in Brooklyn from all over the world. Everyone wants to come to Brooklyn. Manhattan's Manhattan's so eighties, you know. They want for the tourists. Yeah, Larry once said about the Yankees. Okay. Oh, really? That's fine. Uh, but yeah, I think that that is part of the legacy um, that Brooklyn is a part of. It. It's this. There's something special about Brooklyn. You know what I mean? Like when when you know when I would tell people my dad was from Brooklyn, they'd be like, oh, like I got some cred for just having my father from Brooklyn. Right. Um, hey, you get on a podcast because of it. Right? <laughs> so uh, you know, I think that's uh, definitely. Uh, it and uh, as well, I think, um, you know, my father was, even though, as I said, my father wasn't a very uh, talkative person, I got a sense of just having him as a father and a sense of Brooklyn, which is, which is my father had this, uh, you know, this interesting mix of tough and, and but with a sense of humor, which, which I see in other, I have a friend who has, whose father was from Brooklyn. And it's the same idea. I think that sums up Brooklyn to me. It's uh, tough, but with a sense of humor. Well, Owen, I appreciate you coming on and, and talking about your father, talking about Brooklyn, talking about New York in general, and, of course, baseball and the Dodgers. And, and uh, you're certainly welcome to, to join us uh, another time. And I appreciate you helping us start back Brooklyn, the uh, Bedford and Sullivan podcast. So thank you all for joining us today, and we'll uh, catch you next time. should be next week. Take care. <laughs>